0: Would you take your Bibles out? We're going to the Gospel of John. Home again. John 18. I'm starting at verse 1. We have, to set this up, we have for chapters 13 through 17, have all been Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Uh, this has been him pouring into them the deepest sorts of spiritual truth: how to walk in the Spirit, how to hear the Spirit. He wanted them to function as he had functioned. He wants us to function. As he functioned. He taught those things. Started out by washing their feet. Served them Passover. Judas goes out. And is in the process of reporting him to the temple authorities. And during that time. He teaches them some more. Takes them out of the room. Because he knows Judas will come back with the police. He then goes out somewhere in Jerusalem. And finishes his teaching and then when he's finished with that, he lifts his eyes, looks into heaven, and starts praying. First of all, for himself. He asks God to give him the promises that he's, he is due for his faithfulness. He, and, and that is souls. And then he prays for the 11. And then he prays for us. His most beautiful prayer in, in, in the world. And he prays those things. And then it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went forth with his disciples over the Kidron, the ravine of the Kidron, where he was a, there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas, then having received and mine says the Roman cohort, does you say anything like that? That is not in the Greek. There's no r- word Roman whatsoever. That's completely the translators putting it in because they think, because they've seen a whole lot of Easter plays. And the word cohort isn't there. It's a Greek word meaning band, simply a band, a band of soldiers, uh, or a band of other things. Uh, and uh, of the band and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The, the, the temple had its own police force. They were Levitical police. And they're cycled through. It goes clear back. I give you in your in your daily Bible study the, the references. You can look it up and see it for yourself. Uh, it goes way back to the time of David. David set it up. And so there's these Levitical police and their job and they're in rotations through the through the day and through the weeks and they'd have time on and time off, all of this kind of stuff. Those they're armed and they are a Levitical police. That's who went with him. Uh, there's no question the Romans didn't send their soldiers on on, on these kinds of events. Uh, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches. Literally, literally lamps and lanterns, and weapons. And, and the weapon is simply a wooden stave. That's the word it says. It doesn't just say weapons, it says staves. They took big old clubs. So they have clubs and they got lamps. And these will be these oil lamps with the wicks burning. And they can have multiple wicks on them. And then you have like three strings and you hold it at a length. Or some of them have a housing around it, a ceramic housing, so that the wind doesn't blow the, the lamps out. They, they had those things in those days. So they're, they're walking uh, through the moonlight with these, with these lamps carrying uh, probably swords, but also wooden staves. That's said in another gospel. All right, so Jesus knowing, verse four, all things. Would you say knowing All things. They were coming upon him. Say that. That Went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Say went forth. forth. They then answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, he didn't say I am he, he said I am. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with him. I think John marvels at that. So when he said to them, I am. He drew back, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Say, let these go their way. John says, to fulfill the word which he spoke, this is part of his prayer, probably about 30 minutes ago, maybe within an hour. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He said that to the father. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Interesting That John bothers to tell us his name, isn't it? Like, why do you need to know the name of this guy? It may be that he became a believer. Uh, Now, picture this. Do you remember what happened with that situation? Peter's really messing everything up. He, you know, Jesus is trying to negotiate his disciples' freedom. Do you see that? He steps forward and says, I'm he, leave them alone. He's protecting us. This is that shepherd who's, who's covering his sheep right here. Peter pulls out his heart and he's obviously no good at this and he wails and he lops the guy's ear off. We've got a crisis now. I mean, they could just, uh, this could could blow it. So Jesus, I I would uh, suppose, it doesn't say, picks the ear up and takes it back on. Now, if you were Malchus, would that impress you? It would, wouldn't it? I think that's why we know his name. I think that's why we know his name. It's like, who is that guy? You have to ask, who is that guy? Yeah, hallelujah. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me. Say the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Say it again. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? All right. Unfortunately, we talk about the cup of suffering. Unfortunately, it is not possible to rescue people out of the darkness of this fallen world without suffering. Forces that hold people down won't let them go without a battle. And people are wounded and even die in battles. Which explains why suffering is necessary. Are you hearing what I'm saying? People often, we we would like to have a Christianity that has no real suffering to it. We would like to be able to sort of stand back and lob prayers at people and things. But without having to get dirty. Without having to roll our sleeves up or get into the mess. Without having to, to struggle or even possibly become persecuted or hurt. We'd like that kind of Christianity, but it doesn't work like that. We live, and it isn't God's will. It's not like he likes to have us suffer. He doesn't want to have us suffer, but suffering is necessary. Why? This planet is held in the grip of of demonic deception. The devil doesn't own this planet. I hear people say that. That's not true at all. The devil is a usurper. He has come in and gained his authority by deceiving the human race to whom this planet was given. He's a liar and a deceiver. He's grabbed our minds and grabbed our hearts. He's grabbed our flesh and he's enslaved us until we serve him. And he dominates the planet through us and through his deception of us. And so people are caught. They're held by what Jesus calls the strong man. They're held in the grip of the strong man. And they have to be taken from him. He will not give them up freely. So whether it's addictions, whether it's depression, whether it's it's unbelief and lostness, whether it's whatever it is, people have to be seized and taken out of that. And those are battles. And if you and I aren't willing to have a battle, if we aren't willing to participate in that kind of thing, people will not be freed through us. We will be barren. Do you hear me? So so, the, the kind of suffering we're talking about, and I'll clarify it more, is not just the suffering of life. It's the suffering of the battle. But not all forms of suffering have the power to rescue people, only a certain kind. Most have no redemptive power at all. They are just the tragic fruit of our own wrong choices or of living in this sinful and broken world. I I wanted to use the term collateral damage. You, You can't live on the planet without us hurting you. I mean, if you haven't been hurt yet, just stick around, man. We'll get you. Just life does. Sinful people, bad decisions, stupidity uh, all, all around us. In fact, the very diseases uh, that many people are suffering as a result of pesticides. It's a result of the, uh, our very DNA. Do you know that the human DNA now is so contaminated with, with RNA uh, just through all the viruses and diseases? Like 50% of our, of our, <laughs> our genome is, is, is RNA now. It's contaminated. We're full of junk Whose fault is that? The creator's? He didn't do this. We opened the door to this mess. And so the planet's devolving. It's declining. It's decaying. And so people get sick and people get contaminated and and people cheat in the way they make our food or various things and and we get sick from it. It's not God's fault. That is not God's fault. We live in a broken, sinful planet and all of us get sprayed with with the collateral damage of it. Yet there are times when God specifically asks his people to suffer because that's the price that must be paid to bring someone out of bondage or unbelief. In those moments, it is a believer's love for God and hurting people that will constrain them to obey. God never forces a person to make that choice. Did you hear that? God never forces us to make that choice. If you're waiting and saying, well, I'll do it when God makes me do it, he won't make you. The point is he puts in front of you a cup and says, will you drink it? He didn't force Jesus. He did not force Jesus. That's what the whole struggle, uh, the, the, John doesn't report it all because he knew it was already well reported, the whole struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he does report that beautiful statement. He says to Peter. He says the cup which the father has given to me. Shall I not drink it? Remember how he prayed? May this cup pass from me. Nevertheless. Not my will. But thine be done. The cup was suffering. All that was ahead of him. Would he drink the cup? God would not pour it down his throat. God set it in front of him. And said I need you to drink that. He sets in front of you and me a cup. And he says, I need you to drink that. Will you do it? He will not pour it down our throat. We have to choose it. It is in those moments that a believer's love for God and hurting people will constrain them to obey. He never forces a person to make that choice. He indicates his will and then asks them to drink the cup he has placed in front of them. In this passage, John shows us the moment Jesus took that cup and began to drink from it. Please notice the suffering God asks his people to perform is not something he imposes on them against their will. It is something he invites us to choose because it is, listen, it is in our willingly willing embrace of that trial that his power can be released. Suffering by itself helps no one. But suffering when it is done by faith and motivated by love becomes a form of spiritual warfare. Did you follow that? Why must I choose it? Why, couldn't, why did Jesus have to choose the cup? Why couldn't he just be a victim? Because there's no power in a victim. There's no redemptive power in that at all. It is when you and I, by faith, motivated by the love of God, take the cup and say, I will do this to save them. I will do this to rescue them. I will do this because God has asked me to do this. Now, you, you draw in the very power of God into that thing and and, and redemptive work is done we know that God can bring something positive out of any situation including suffering but that is not the kind of suffering Jesus embraced that evening in Gethsemane he was choosing to do what was necessary to save us he put our needs ahead of his own and as a result, he provided a way of escape from eternal separation from God for every human who would believe in him. That kind of suffering is not the misery of disease or injury, it's not the darkness of depression or the bruising left behind by demonic attack. Those forms of suffering are our enemies. Do you hear that? Those forms of suffering are our enemies. They are ultimately the result of the devil's war against the human race. Yes, God can bring something good out of everything. Hallelujah. But he didn't send that garbage. They happen to both the guilty and the innocent. They come to all who live in a fallen world. They aren't God's will. They are part of the miseries from which Jesus came to rescue us. By the time John wrote this gospel, the other three gospels were already in circulation. Do you understand that? His is the last of the four. Some people place it and think he wrote it around 90 AD. I don't. Because in the gospel, he's still assuming the temple is present and Jerusalem's intact. Which means he wrote it before 70 AD. Um, but he, Matthew, John Mark. And John Mark is the, is the, is the son of the, man, of, the, of the woman and man who owned the house that had the upper room. You know that? He wrote Mark's gospel with Peter being his source. He, he, he wrote what Peter told him to write. So Peter really kind of wrote that gospel. And then you've got Luke, and we all know the physician Luke. Those gospels were all written. John knew them. John was in Ephesus. John had those things. So he's not trying to rewrite what's already written. What he's doing is correcting false things that had come into the church. False teachings that were trying to come in about Jesus about foundational things. He's trying to show us something, the things that were missed and correcting. This is John the apostle straightening the thinking of the church out. By the time he wrote this gospel, the other three were already in circulation. He knew what Matthew, John, Mark, and Luke had written. That's why he didn't repeat all the same descriptions of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He didn't need to retell what had already been told so well. But he did want us to see a very profound truth which was at work in the heart of Jesus during those events. He wanted us to understand that Jesus willingly went to the cross. Why? First of all, because it reveals his love for us. But I also believe there's another reason. I believe John wanted us to follow Jesus' example. He was showing us that we too must choose to suffer to rescue others. Now, no one but Jesus could be the sacrifice for human sin. He performed a unique ministry on the cross that no other person in all of history could perform. But the fact that he willingly chose to suffer for us models an element of discipleship. Each of us must choose to follow. We can't die for lost people. Only he could do that. But in order for the power of his redemption to reach lost people, God's people must be willing to suffer. I'm going to read that again. In order for the power of his redemption, to reach lost people, God's people must be willing to suffer. And as he did with Jesus, the Father won't force us to drink the cup. He'll place it in front of us and wait for us to obey. I'm going to skip the, the daily Bible study. Let me just tell you what, what you did. John says this. He says, after Jesus prayed, he went across... The Wadi He uses a word in the Greek, the, the winter flow. He went across the Wadi, or Nahal, the, the, the dry riverbed in the summer, but it has some water in it often when it rains. Uh, he went across that into the garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't say there's a, a little garden like you, somebody planted a nice garden with daisies. The word in, 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 in Greek, it's "kepos. It's, it's, it's keep." It's a place of wall. A surrounded enclosure. And of course it's it's Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane it means the olive press. And when you go to Israel, uh you'll see olive presses. <laughs> and there's they're, they're severe matters. Uh, the one in the one in Capernaum is this massive stone monolith kind of thing that they lifted up with a great, you know, a great lever um, that they lifted up and put this thing that must weigh two t- tons, and they would put it on the olives in these, in these uh, woven bags and squeeze all the oil out of it. Or they had great logs with, with rocks caught, talk, tied to them, and they would crush the olives. Boy, what, a, what an image there, huh? He went to this keep, this surrounded area, which had an olive press in it. They crushed all the oil out, and he waited for them to come. So John is showing us the willingness of Jesus in this. He wants us to see... He chose it. he was no victim they didn 't catch him they didn 't trap him he didn 't stumble into arrest he He leaves wherever he was and goes back to his campsite. This is where they camped. They may have rented the space from somebody. There may have been some sort of covering, so this is where they 're camping. He goes and he waits for Judas to arrive and then and then when when Judas and the mob arrive he, he he watches the lanterns coming across the Kidron. He can watch them coming through the olive grove. You know, can you imagine the, the, the light being sh- sparkling through the, the thing as they come? Hear the feet. Just, no, he, he waits for them. And then John says, He came out of that keep, he came out of that uh, enclosure area, walks out, and he confronts them and says, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And if you read the study, I'll tell you that's an insult the way it said. They they didn't say Jesus of Nazareth; they said Jesus the Nazarene. Never mind. So I can't go on in there. Um, so they, he, he he says, "I'm I am, I am." Now, this is the man that just days before thousands were lining the street, going hosanna to the Son of David. This is the man who raised Lazarus, who everybody knows, from the dead, four days dead, just within the week. Now, who wants to be the first one to touch him? Not me. <laughs> you know, nobody. He says, I am. And they fall back, either out of fear or probably out also out of the power of the Holy Spirit. The man has been interceding like like something else uh, up to this and an angel has just strengthened him so here's the you can imagine the power on him and then he says I am and they're going ah oh. they fall to the ground and, he, and then he simply says again who are you looking for he said Jesus the Nazarene he said I told you I'm him leave them alone and he's protecting them and Peter with his impulsiveness grabs his sword and Lops the poor guy's ear off and the whole thing. John is showing us what? He's no victim. This is what John wants us to do. See, he wants us to see that our suffering for Christ must be willing. We must follow our Lord's example. He chose to do this. He wasn't trapped into it. He did it because the love of God constrained him. That great shepherd's heart to protect us drove him out. He waited for them. The choice. I think I more or less repeat I'm gonna do I can I skip that? You want to hear it again? Okay, if you want to hear it, I'll do it. Again. I just more or less told it to you, but I, but let's 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 let it reinforce. This passage shows us Jesus repeatedly making the choice to suffer for us. It was one choice repeated many times. Did you notice that too? One choice repeated many times. Say that. When you decide to follow the Lord, you'll you'll decide to suffer. You'll decide, I'm going to take the hard road, and you'll have to make that choice over and over again. It isn't one choice you make, and then that's kind of, then cruise. You have to keep making it. When after he finished praying, he walked back to their campsite to wait for Judas to show up. He didn't hide or flee. He went to the place where he knew Judas would come sooner or later. He must have seen the lanterns and the lamps as they crossed the Kidron Ravine and moved through the olive grove. When the crowd arrived, he stepped out of the enclosed garden and walked up to them. And he spoke first. He asked them who they were seeking. And when they said Jesus the Nazarene, he immediately acknowledged that he was that person. After everyone fell to the ground, he asked again and again, affirmed that he was the one they had come to arrest. At that point, he began to negotiate for his disciples released. And even after Peter nearly ruined his plan by wildly swinging his sword and cutting off a man's ear, Jesus calmed the situation by healing the, the man. That was essential that he heal that man. Or they were going to be mobbed. Right then, they would have, people would have struck and started swinging. And, and Jesus puts that ear back on. <laughs> man, I'm going to be That, I mean, that's stunning. He, he just stopped the situation. That was an essential moment. It was more than just a, like, look what I can do. That was essential. He, he fixed what Peter just messed up. Um, then he told Peter to put the sword away because he had to drink the cup which the father had given him. Meaning he must submit to the arrest and all that would follow. 750 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had written these words. Read it with me. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Do you see the word if in there? The Lord will do this if he will render himself. And what's a guilt offering? It's, he's going he's to be a, a lamb killed on the sacrificial altar. If he'll render himself for that, if he'll present himself for that, Then this will happen. There it is. Do you see it? If he would render himself as a guilt offering. It was not enough that God willed it. His servant must choose to obey his will. If he was willing. If he would willingly become our guilt offering. God would give him offspring. That's us. And prolong his days. Did you see that lovely phrase? That's the resurrection. There it is. If he let us kill him. He will see his days. He'll come up from the dead and be alive again i believe that the lord was holding on to that promise i believe that verse was was key to him as he died on the cross remember this he set aside his divine knowledge he died as a man in faith a man trusting that the promises of god would happen can you imagine letting people do that to you Believing that God would raise you from the dead as he promised. Wow. He's walked in faith even as he calls you and me to walk in faith at a deeper level than we'll ever walk. He died in faith. God had prepared a plan of salvation, but Jesus had to choose to participate in that plan. His sacrifice must be voluntary, not forced, and so must ours. The motive. John not only tells us what Jesus did, he also tells us why he did it. We discover that Jesus surrendered himself in order to protect his disciples. John explained that this was to, quote, fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Say not one. John is pointing out a protective instinct in Jesus. Like a shepherd with a lost sheep or a woman with a lost coin, he was not willing to lose even one. His desire to protect his disciples from physical harm in that dangerous confrontation was an expression of an even greater desire to protect them spiritually. I love that about him. He will fight for you. Like a mother with her children. Anybody attacks a mother's children, watch out. She will go to another level, won't she? She will go to another level. Disregarding her own safety, she will do whatever it takes to defend those children, won't she? He's just like that. You see that there, protecting them. Take me, leave them alone. John says he did that to fulfill what he prayed, that he prayed for us. And not one of us would be lost. So he's showing, it's way beyond just that moment of physical safety. It's the spiritual thing he's doing. He's doing this for all of us. John's telling us. His desire to protect his disciples from physical harm in that dangerous confrontation was an expression of an even greater desire to protect them spiritually. He offered himself so they could go free. His love for them and us ran so deep he did not hesitate for a moment. Do you see that as you read the story? To do what he must do. There was not a moment's hesitation in the way he conducted himself. And by showing us Jesus' heart, John challenges us to let our love for others cause us to do the same thing. The result. By surrendering to that mob, Jesus picked up the cup the Father placed before him and began to drink. And here's how Isaiah in that same passage I I read to you earlier, describe the result of that choice. Would you read this with me? Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus provided a rescue for every person who will repent and believe. His freely chosen act of love released a saving power able to forgive our sins and heal our sorrows and disease. We're being shown another important piece in the understanding of Jesus. He is God's son. He is a human being. He was tempted in all ways like as we, but he also freely chose to do what he did. Do you remember the story in the life of Joseph? Joseph's brothers had uh, betrayed him. They'd thrown him into a pit, and then they took him out and sold him to a passing slave trader, and they took him down and sold him in Egypt. Potiphar bought him first, and then he got in trouble, and... Ended up in jail, you know, actually in a dungeon in irons. um, And then came out of there because he had that prophetic gift. And ended up being the governor of Egypt. Well, one of the things he had prophesied was seven years of famine. Recall this? And that famine affected not only Egypt, it also affected Israel. And so in the course of it, his father Jacob and the other sons began to run out of food. And so Jacob says, "I want you to go down to Egypt and buy food for us, buy, buy grain for us." So he sends 10 of the brothers. Down they go, and then Judas I mean Joseph plays his trick on them. Remember, he plants a cup in somebody's sack and all of that stuff. And, and it was um, Simeon's sack, if I recall. And I can guarantee you who was the ringleader behind throwing him in that pit? Simeon. I'll bet you anything. Simeon was a, a genocidal, by the way. He and Levi. They killed a whole, whole family. They, they, they were something else. And so he gets Simeon in jail. And then he says, now, if you want him back, you go get your father. That's old younger brother of yours. You get your younger brother. Who was his younger brother? Benjamin, Benjamin who was Rachel's other child. So this is his full brother. His little brother. says, you bring him back. Then when he comes in, he, he comes up with the plan. He says to them, I'm going to keep Benjamin here. Uh, you go back and get your father. And something happened right there, if you remember the story. One of those, 10, uh, those now 11 brothers stepped up and said, no, I can't leave Benjamin. He said, I promised my father. And he says, he says, it would kill my father if Benjamin didn't come back. So he says, take me instead. I will stay in prison while they go back. Who was that? Judah. Judah, Judah is not the firstborn in Israel's, in, in Israel's household, is he? He's the fourth. Reuben lost his place. Other people blew it uh, along the line. Judah becomes the, the family leader. The blessing of that family will go to Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's son's. But the leadership of the family will go, in other words, the, 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 the um, inheritance will go to Judah. Jesus is from what line? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Even Jacob, Jacob prophesies that the scepter will never depart from between your feet. This is the moment. Think of what Judah did in that moment. He became like Jesus. He said take me. Not him. This is, a, this is what he wants us to see. This is what Jesus is doing for us. Mm-hmm. Willingly. Choosing to take our place. The, and The example. No. Where did I end up? I'm all good, I'm on it. As John's description of the crucifixion continues, we will watch Jesus make this same choice over and over again. And as events move closer to his death, his motive becomes more and more evident. It was his love that compelled him to die for us. By showing us Jesus' heart, John is not only teaching us the truth about why Jesus did what he did, he wants us to follow in Jesus' footsteps. He wants us to allow God's love to compel us to make the same selfless choices. Redemptive suffering. There are many ways God asks his people to suffer in order to rescue lost and hurting people. It may involve enduring patiently with a difficult person for a long time. Waiting hopefully for God to break through the unbelief that grips that person's heart. I don't want any hands, but I'll bet you there's a bunch of us here right now. Who are having to wait patiently while someone's heart finally opens up to God. And it's suffering, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes you stick in a situation and you keep praying and it's just, you're dying inside. You so want to get away from that. You so want to cut that tie and stop loving. And you're not allowed to. Don't tell me this isn't suffering. But you have to keep praying, and you have to keep believing, and you have to keep those channels open, and you're miserable. Welcome to the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. This is how captives are pulled out of the arms of the strong man. It requires that kind of suffering. It may mean going into situations that aren't safe. Or serving in a difficult assignment in order to heal teach or comfort people. It may mean changing career plans. It may mean giving up lucrative income to work harder for less money. It may mean doing something miserable day after day, year after year, because people we love are depending on us. But whatever need we're called to meet, suffering will always be a necessary part of it. We must love people enough To do what God says is necessary to help them. And that choice to suffer must be made over and over again. And the only motive strong enough to cause us to drink that cup is love. A deep protective instinct that compels us to do whatever we have to do to rescue our beloved. Do you notice that I use the phrase, whatever God says. Did you say, say God says, you see that in there, there are people who want you to do things for them and then, and the love of God will actually compel you not to. It's called tough love. So what we're not saying is respond to every need, respond to every demand that's placed on you and let people, let people walk on you like a, like a doormat. That is not at all what we're talking about. What we're talking about is God's assignments. When he says, you stick with this thing. When he says, you do this. When he says, you change go to the mission field. We've, we've got people right now, several in the church, who are, who are stepping out into the mission field, leaving family, leaving the security of their home, leaving good jobs, leaving all sorts of stuff, and going out into who knows what. Everybody's crying I was sitting with somebody the other day and just tears in the eyes, you know, the pain of leaving, the pain of this whole thing, and the family's pain as they go. It's painful. It is suffering. They feel deeply called, and I have no doubt that God will use them powerfully. You follow this? Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to discipleship. This is how we follow Christ. He willingly, lovingly chose these things, and we do too, as we follow him. Our our perfect sacrifice. God, in his wisdom, prepared a perfect sacrifice for us. For that person to have in himself the moral worth to pay for the sins of all humanity, he must be God's divine son. To represent all humanity and genuinely die for our sins, he must be human. To be sinless, he must be tempted in all ways we are, yet not once yield to temptation. And in today's lesson, we discover another essential element. He must be a willing sacrifice, not a victim. He must choose to die for us, motivated by a deep love which is determined to protect every one of us. And he must die for us by faith trusting God's promises that he would receive that offering as an acceptable sacrifice to fully pay the price for the sins of the world when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah Isaac was not a willing sacrifice that poor kid got trapped and I'll bet he needed therapy after that whole event remember this yeah Abraham walked watches him up 50 miles there from uh, Beersheba all the way up to Mount Moriah and by the way Mount Moriah is the mountain upon, right at the base of which Jesus was crucified. I mean, it, it, not base of which, they actually cut it out. Never mind, I won't give you the whole history, but they notched it. So for, but the pictures you see of Golgotha, and if, I'll show you one of these days. I've got a beauty from 1900. Shows you the whole face of this mountain. And there's the eyes, there's the nose, there's the mouth, there's the, there's the skull. And Jesus was crucified right right there. And uh, there it is. Uh, anyway, the top of that peak is where Abraham would have gone. Just yards from where Jesus was crucified. Right? And, and so he, Abraham comes, and, and on the way up, Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He says, Oh, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice, my son. And then at some point, he builds the altar, lays the wood, and then he grabs Isaac enties him and lays him on this thing and is about to kill him with the knife. Isaac is a victim. But at that same place, within yards of that, our heavenly father would ask his son to climb on that altar and let him die for us. And he did. You see what we're learning? John wants to see the heart of Jesus. John is showing us the truth about our Savior. So that we might believe that truth and be saved. A false Savior cannot save save us. Believing a lie has no power to deliver us. And the truth is there is only one person. Whom God prepared to redeem us from our slavery to sin and death. And the death it brings with it. Only one perfect sacrifice can forgive Our selfishness, rebellion and pride and allow us to become the people God intended us to be. His eternal children. That's the goal. You and I are to become God's eternal children. These foundational truths about Jesus are not simply interesting. They are vital. We must believe the whole truth about Jesus. Because it's only the real Jesus that can set us free. That's why John wrote this gospel. He wanted to make us wanted to make sure that these truths about Jesus weren't lost in the confusion of human speculation and demonic deception. Already in John's time, the truth about Jesus was being badly distorted. Lies were being told. Confusion was, was going forward. Instantly, the devil went after this. If you think heresies and confusion are, 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 are just for our times, w- you don't understand. The devil's been attacking the truth of Jesus Christ since, since the moment he ascended into heaven. Actually, before it, he wanted those who read his words to believe them and be saved. But he also wanted us to proclaim these truths to others. And he knew that that would happen only if we choose to suffer in whatever ways become necessary. And the only motive that could cause us to do that is the compelling love to protect others. Just like Jesus protected us. I have a course that I've written. It's part of our, our um, LMI, our Life Ministry Institute. It's called uh, Hearing God's Call. Some of you may have taken it. And it's different than most what you would call calling courses. A lot of calling courses, they, they try to evaluate what do you like to do, what makes you happy when you do it, that kind of thing. I'm, my thought is God doesn't care what makes you happy. <laughs> if you think I'm happy preaching, you've got another thing coming. But it, it's He didn't ask what makes you happy. He asked what he needs and how he designed you. It isn't what fulfills you. It isn't about fulfillment. It's about fruitfulness. Yeah. And he knows how he designed us. And so what I, the way I designed the course, is, it goes after this. The question is, where has God placed in your heart compassion? Yeah. Where does the love of God constrain you? And you'll notice it. It will actually be there whether you like it or not in a sense. It's where you keep looking around and you see human need. Something strikes you. Some area of human need just bothers you, and you have this this sometimes anger that says, "Why isn't somebody doing something about this? How can we leave people like that? Somebody do so- the government ought to do something about this." That's the American way. Uh, that frustration in you, that compassion in you, that's the people to whom you're called. It isn't about your gifts. Your gifts are your toolbox. It's another course. Your calling is where the love of God drives you. It's where the love of God pulls you into human need. That's your calling. You're called to people and to human need. You follow this? If that love is not there, and I think this is where probably some people may take the course and go, that doesn't make any sense to me. Listen to me, people. If love isn't there, something's wrong. Because when the new birth takes place, God puts within us his love. If you belong to Christ, you have a compassion. If there's no compassion, you need to do some serious business with the Lord. And that will include deep surrender. You're probably running away from surrender. It's probably the issue. But just bow your knee to him. Trust him. Give him, give him your life. And you will find that your heart. Out goes the heart of stone. And in comes a heart of flesh. And you will long and, and, and draw. And you can't help yourself. You'll, you'll see lost people and broken people and confused people and depressed people. And it will break your heart. You won't be comfortable. Welcome to the new heart. This is part of the suffering, actually. Of belonging to Jesus Christ. Is a tender heart that can't live with a calloused way or a harsh way, but has to look at people and long for them. Our choice. When someone is born again, God pours his love into that person's heart. If we look inside and discover that there is no such love in us for anyone, if people only frustrate us and offend us, then something is deeply wrong. We need to look at Jesus again and recognize that he is calling us to follow him, not just admire him. And following him will always require us to let him lead us into paths of selfless service. There is an inescapable cost to discipleship. There is a cross every one of us must embrace. A life of following him will not be a sad life. Because it will be freely chosen and motivated by love. It'll be full of his presence. He will, he's with us. There's a joy in it. But if we follow him, that's the path into which he will lead us. Have you and I decided to follow? Will we drink the cup he's placed in front of us? Will we suffer? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.